Hello, I'm Dr. Ann Katz. Welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism, but lots of information. For the last 20 years, I've worked with individuals and couples who are experiencing sexual difficulties, mostly those related to cancer treatment. I've written a whole lot of articles and books on the topic and traveled all over the world, educating healthcare providers and people with cancer. It's been a great adventure on many levels, and now I've started a small private practice for anyone experiencing sexual problems, especially those related to any kind of illness, infertility, etc. You can learn more about me, my books, and other writing on my website, drannkatz.com. I am so excited to introduce this podcast guest, Dr. Elizabeth Grill, a clinical psychologist at the Center for Reproductive Medicine and Infertility at the New York Presbyterian Hospital Weill Medical College of Cornell University. Dr. Grill is experienced as a counseling psychologist and medical researcher with a special focus on the emotional aspects of infertility, IVF treatment, cancer-related infertility, and sexual dysfunction. She provides individuals, couples, and group therapy for patients, participating in all forms of assisted reproduction. She also has significant experience in all aspects of oocyte or egg donation, including donor and recipient evaluation and treatment issues. She also serves as vice chair of the Mental Health Professional Group of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. It's always great to be here with you. Any excuse to hang out with you? It would be much better in person, but here we are. Very true. So, sexuality and infertility. Which came first? The chicken yeah. or the egg? Yeah, well, it's kind of bi-directional. I think that they both can influence each other. We know that infertility affects over 6 million couples, so it's certainly a pretty significant aspect of what people go through to understand the sexuality that changes over time. I mean, there's a real shift in the meaning of sexuality as people negotiate infertility. So, you know, the meanings will shift from sex for pleasure to sex for procreation. So there's a lot of like a methodical approach to sex even for more of an efficient ejaculation, they call it. So the focus is really on how to get pregnant rather than the pleasure. Um, Sex as an expression of intimacy can become work sex. So it takes all the fun out of it. It can become predictable and unexciting. Forget the foreplay, forget the orgasm. That's no longer even part of the equation. Um, And sex as an expression of love becomes sex, unfortunately, as an expression of failure. You know, there's a lot of pain associated with not getting pregnant each month. And so it's simply just a reminder of what's not happening. And it's really no longer an expression of intimacy. So those are sort of the big changes that we see with these couples. So do you automatically see all couples that present for IVF at your institution? No, we don't. At our institution, it's really by referral. There's just too many numbers coming through. Very few clinics can really handle, unfortunately, sending every single person or couple to mental health specialists. It would be great if they could. I know in Canada, they do. They do something called implications counseling sometimes where couples and individuals are mandated to sit down for like a psychoeducational consultation, which is wonderful. I mean, I wish we could do that with everyone that goes through. 
That's so interesting because when I've actually spoken to some of the nurses that work at infertility clinics, they say that that meeting with a psychologist rarely has anything to do with sexuality. And it's more about coping with the infertility, coping with the side effects and the financial constraints of IVF. So even though it seems that things here in Canada are so great, perhaps they aren't that great after all. I think you're right. I don't think there's touching on sexuality issues unless the couple's bringing it up. So I think you're right. It's really mostly just about what's going on with trying to get pregnant. You would hope that that would come up with that conversation. I mean, there's a big difference between trying to conceive naturally and what happens to the intimacy between a couple as they're, you know, monitoring ovulation and the performance anxiety that can come up for men when they know they have to have sex on demand during a very certain time of the month. And then, of course, when they get into IVF treatment or any kind of assisted reproductive technology, there's this phenomenon that takes place. They call it the doctor in the bedroom phenomenon. So everything becomes scientific and medicalized. And then there's that sense that nothing is in the bedroom anymore. And it's all been turfed over to the clinic. Yeah, sad that something that should be pleasurable and joyful uh, becomes work and, and perhaps unpleasantness as well. Yeah. I found a recent literature review that looked at a bunch of studies related to this. They quoted that there's a real high percentage of sexual dysfunction in these couples. 43 to 90% of women have some sort of sexual dysfunction and 48 to 58% of men. Those are really, really high percentages. And as a sexuality counselor, I'm thinking about the suffering that goes along with that, perhaps the conflict, the name calling, the finger pointing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we know that just with IVF patients, the percentages of depression and anxiety are super high. So when you, you know, put an overlay of the sexuality problems that we see as well, you can understand why these people are suffering so much. But a lot of avoidance, uh, like you said, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of low desire, um, a lot of the women really only wanting to have sex during ovulation if they're still trying on their own. Of course, once they get into the clinic, it's a little bit different then they're probably avoiding it altogether. And then for the men, this idea that they're supposed to sort of perform on demand and then the shame they feel when they can't and the disappointment. So you have a lot of the women thinking, oh, I'm so depressed. Like the last thing I want to do is have sex tonight. But if I don't get pregnant, I don't know what I'll do. So I really hope that he can get it up tonight, right? And then you have the men thinking, oh my God, I really hope that she's not ovulating. I hope she doesn't approach me. But if I can't perform, then she's going to be upset. She's going to wind up in tears. We're going to be in a big fight all night and we're not going to speak for two days. So you can see how all of a sudden the cycle of avoidance and pulling away begins to happen. Sometimes it's even easier once they wind up in IVF, which is sometimes what we recommend. There's this ethical debate about whether someone should work on their intimacy and their relationship and put the fertility stuff on hold or whether they should split it up all together and just pursue reproduction at the fertility center and work on their relationship, or just put the sex on hold and just go to the clinic and do IVF. So we had a real debate around what's the best treatment options for people. People don't have the luxury of time sometimes to just work on their issues. Right. That's, that's so interesting. Of course, there are always those financial considerations as well. And mm -hmm. IVF is so expensive and it also doesn't always necessarily work the first time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. People can be in it for years. Do you see any difference if it's male caused infertility versus woman caused? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, men, ex- uh, sorry, women experience more depression and the depression lasts for longer periods of time, which makes sense because even if it's male factor, the women still carry the brunt of the treatment. So they're still the ones having to do the injections and go in for treatment um, and, you know, affected by the hormones daily. So women suffer a little bit more, but there is more research now showing that men do quite a bit of suffering as well. There are tremendous gender differences in the literature that's reported. And of course, it can vary, you know, that these are just stereotypes. But we know that women have a lot more depression. We know that they have a lot more anxiety. And we know that men start to feel the performance anxiety and they feel like what they call a stud service or a queen bee syndrome. So their sole purpose is to fertilize. The only reason that they exist in the relationship is for their sperm. So that creates a real sense of neglect and rejection. We know that men complain about having to provide samples at the clinic, which infuriates women because women say, well, if I'm getting poked and prodded with needles and having to go for ultrasounds every day, the least you can do is go, you know, masturbate in the cup and provide a sample. But for the men, there's a real sense of shame attached to it. Some of the clinics aren't equipped with materials that work for them. And they feel like, you know, no one really understands how embarrassing it is. And so men and women experience very different things as they go through this. And that's the disconnect sometimes why you see a lot of um, couples fighting over this stuff. So part of the therapy is really helping them understand each other. They need to come back to forming a united front as they go through this. Yeah, which I imagine is not that easy if there's blame and shame and and guilt and anger. Yes. What do you see in, you know, maybe we'll get to men later with the whole masturbation issue. What do you see in women in terms of so many of the examinations are really invasive, the repeated ultrasounds, never mind the injections, which often, you know, make women's bellies look like target practice and the bruising and everything. So what do you see in women in terms of that disconnect from their body, which I see a lot of in my patients who are going through cancer treatment, particularly with gynecologic cancer or colorectal cancer, that constant invasion of very private areas of of a woman's body. What do you see in terms of that uh, in women going through treatment? It's interesting you compare it to the cancer world too, because the research shows that the distress levels that women feel as they go through IVF is comparable to those who experience cancer or heart disease or HIV. And on a life scale event, they rate it as high as having breast cancer and like death and divorce. So I think some of those things are true to the fertility world as well in terms of living with the uncertainty, like you said, the physical stress, the emotional strain, the financial strain, the chronic length of time that this takes place. Just like with cancer, there's so many pieces to it. With this, there's no certainty of when this will end. Uh, when, what will happen at the end of it, you know, when it does finally end, will they have a child, will they not, will they have to move on to other options? But yeah, the, the trauma, really, I would call it for a lot of women, even if they haven't had a previous history of trauma, of going in every morning and having to put their feet up in stirrups and being examined often by a different person every single day, and then the shots and the injections and having to learn the terminology and the ups and downs. I mean, they, they call it an emotional roller coaster. So having to kind of get the strength and the hope to ride up that hill on that roller coaster. And then if they get their period and it doesn't work, they just come crashing down and then having to do it all over again the next month. So it's really a physical, emotional, financial strain. It's a real burden for people. 
I'm just thinking about how certainly many of my patients have told me that when they do go through treatment for cancer and they're having radiation therapy, perhaps for a gynecologic cancer, and same thing, their feet are in the stirrups. Sound feels like the world and its dog is is walking around and you know looking at parts of them that are so private. Many women say to me, "I took my head off my shoulders and put my head in the corner, and it was like they were doing things to a body that was not mine." So that's typical dissociation, yeah. right? So yeah. you know, I imagine that perhaps some women experiencing infertility treatment must go through that too, and how that just adds another layer to the lack of sexual pleasure, etc. Oh, absolutely. They don't see themselves as sexual beings anymore at all. I mean, like you said, the invasiveness of the treatment itself and how it becomes, there's nothing private about their bodies anymore, right? So everything becomes about science and technology and doctors and nurses, but they're in pain, they're in discomfort, they're bloated, they often put on weight. They, Like you said, they're black and blue everywhere. They can get welts from like the progesterone shots can cause these swollen, you know, hot welts on their body. So of course, the last thing they want to do when their partners approach them is to feel like they're sexy or that they want to be touched. You know, they don't even want to be, like you said, they want to dissociate from their own bodies, let alone be present for someone else. Yeah. And, you know, let's talk a little bit about men. Some years ago, I actually saw an individual. He was from another country and um, he was going to have a radical prostatectomy. He was a man in his fifties. And there was just a little voice in my head that said, ask him if he's finished creating a family. And I asked him and he had a much younger wife who was in his country of origin. I was really pleased with myself that I'd caught this just in time. And I referred him to the fertility clinic. And a couple of months later, I checked in with him to see how it went. And he said, oh, that place was not very professional, which sort of alarmed me, quite frankly. And I said, well, what do you mean? And his response was, do you know what reading material they have in that room? And I said, well, I could guess. And he said, you know, why would anyone think that I would be interested in seeing white women in that way? So lack of cultural sensitivity and assumption, first of all, that it's heterosexual men. Exactly. Um, I was just going to say, what if the same sex couples? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a real problem. There's just a lack of sensitivity. And often we will tell people, you know, bring your own material. They, you know, they don't like the fact that their partners aren't in the room with them. Some people in extreme situations are given permission to collect at home for all of those reasons, but then there's contamination that can happen. So it's, you know, they're in this horrible, sterile environment. These rooms are often not soundproof. They're often very, very tight quarters. And they know that there's people on the other side of that door in the waiting room and, you know, nurses and technicians wandering around waiting for them. It's terrible. Yeah, but as yeah. I said, not a lot of empathy from the women on this one. <laughs> so the men are going to, I think, have to find their empathy elsewhere from their partners. They may not get it. Interesting. How do couples avoid some of these pitfalls? I'm always resolution focused. You know, we can talk for hours about all the problems, but let's talk about what can couples do to get through this, get over this, get under this? of most of the therapies we're used to. So a lot of psychoeducation, teaching them to debunk a lot of these myths, like the myths that women should be receptive and willing and men should be ready, able and willing whenever they partners need them and really educating both people that that's actually not true, that those are myths and that here's really what's real about what's going on. The simple validation will make them feel more normal and less anxious that something's really wrong with them. 
cognitive restructuring, right? Dealing with negative thoughts. You know, what are they thinking when they're in the bedroom? The first time a man can't perform, it's very hard to take that out of their heads. And so really dealing with the fact that it's normal and here's why it happened and you're fine. And of course, if you need to refer them to a neurologist to make sure that physiologically they are, that's fine too. But, you know, if it really is because of the performance on demand issue, simple relaxation techniques, sensate focus, increasing fantasy and erotica, anything that is going to really teach them to get back in touch with having their thoughts be in the right place and having the right amount of stimulation the way they need it. Remember, we were talking about sex becomes very methodical. So often there isn't the proper amount of foreplay to even be able to get excited to perform. So sometimes it's just educating and then like prescribing techniques to help them get back. I read somewhere that sexful procreation should happen outside of the bedroom, that the bedroom should be a place for pleasurable sex rather than conception sex. Right. And it doesn't have to be the bedroom, right? So I tell people, have the couch be the place that is fun, spontaneous, or lovemaking sex. And then have another area, you know, it doesn't really matter, right? If it's the dining room table, the kitchen sink, the bedroom, or a hotel room. But you're absolutely right. The idea of just completely dividing up where they have sex for procreation and where they have sex for connection and intimacy. It's a wonderful thing to tell people to do and to remember what they did when they first met to recapture some of that fun and that play or to introduce erotica, have them order some things online. So getting them back in touch with this idea that it can be playful and fun and spontaneous as long as it's not during ovulation. Right. What else have you found helpful um, you know, dates, like remembering what it was like before. There's just so much stress. So I sometimes will prescribe simple and fun things like make a list of 20 things that bring you pleasure. Share it with your partner, not necessarily sexual pleasure, just pleasure and joy. Because couples, as they go through this, so much of the pleasure and joy is taken from them. So getting back in touch with things that just bring about positive connection and, and you know, go on a date text each other flirtatious messages during the day, or at least just positive messages. So anything that will get them back um, communicating again, flirting again, feeling comfortable again, date night. You know, the other important thing is to do a date night where they absolutely cannot talk about anything related to fertility or sexuality if they're arguing over that, that it has to be other things. They cannot, it's like a, it's a fertility-free zone of communication. And then to counteract that, because it's equally important that couples do talk about what's going on and support one another, you can have 10-minute check-ins every night or maybe on a Sunday morning over coffee. You know, you have an hour-long check-in. I let couples decide what the time and, you know, how much time is right for them so that you just designate, just like you're designating areas for sex, you're designating areas for conversation around certain topics. And a lot of couples will find that very helpful. I'm just thinking about this is something that, really should be private. And yet the couples, family, friends, work colleagues, everybody knows that they're trying to conceive and naturally they think, oh, they're having sex and and how unnatural that is. How do you advise couples to deal with family and friends who really care but shouldn't know this kind of stuff about people? You know, I tell people friends and family are usually well-intended and well-meaning, although they'll say the stupidest things all the time, right? And often people find that very comforting to have someone say that to them because that's exactly how they're feeling. But the usual um, pattern that we see is the first few cycles, if they're doing IVF or if they're just starting to get pregnant, trying to get pregnant, 
they'll tell a lot of people and they'll open up to people for support. But by the time they're on a second or third round of IVF, they are so regretting that decision because now everyone's in their business and everyone's asking personal questions and everyone wants to know the size of the follicles of their oocytes. And so often you have to train and teach and help and role play with couples how to set boundaries and pull back and pull away from people and do it in a respectful way where they don't burn a bridge later on because they're going to need those people back in their lives. But, you know, I tell people they're entitled to privacy and they often feel relieved to hear that. And I will say exactly what you just said. You know, you don't walk up to people and say, are you ovulating and having sex tonight? So I say, you know, it's no one's business how you make a baby. And this is particularly comforting to people who are moving on to options like donor egg and donor sperm, because that's really when they want their privacy back. So I'll tell them it's no one's business how and when you make a baby. Right. So you're allowed to tell people, you know, I don't go around asking you those questions about your personal life. And I expect the same courtesy in return, you know, and you can say it in much more polite ways. You can just say, you know, we're focused on our future, not on what we've been through, or we don't discuss the details of how we're trying to build our family, but we can't wait to share good news with you once we're pregnant. So there's just ways that you can say it in a very polite way that draws a line in the sand and says, don't cross this line again. Yeah, really important. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who perhaps doesn't know how to reach out for professional help? It's really important because so many people wind up isolated as they go through this experience. Um, It's a very isolating, withdrawing experience because people who go through any kind of infertility really feel like the rest of the world doesn't understand. And since we were talking about the comparison to cancer, one, I'm sure there's many areas where, where they're different, but in one particular area, when someone winds up with, let's say, breast cancer, usually like people's family and friends and groups of people rally around them. Um, we hope they'll start things like, when are we delivering dinners every night and who's taking her to chemotherapy and who's taking her to the surgery? And with infertility, even though we know it causes the same levels of distress, no one's sort of deciding, you know, like, well, who's going to deliver the night dinner the night of retrieval and transfer? So it becomes really isolating because people don't know really, they don't know what to do with it. Family and friends don't know what to do with it. So couples wind up withdrawing and not seeing people anymore, not talking to people anymore. And that can lead to a lot of depression and anxiety. So there are plenty of mental health professionals who are aware of these issues and reaching out to someone in the clinic and saying, hey, do you consult with anyone? Reaching out to, you know, whatever networks you have of people or friends or there's lots of different ways. At least in the United States, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, places like Resolve, which is a national you know, infertility organization. And I know you have all these counterparts in Canada as well. So I will botch all of the names if I try to give them, but you certainly can. And they, they usually have on their websites listings of how to find mental health professionals who are specially trained in this area. If there's one thing that you could say to a couple dealing with this, what would it be? Well, the sexual part, I would say that the good news is it's transient, right? The other piece is that, you know, these are usually episodic, transient kinds of issues that come up because of the fertility experience. But I will also say that the patterns will follow you through. So if you are dealing with sexuality issues prior, they will probably be made a little bit worse by this experience. And they're not just going to magically go away. 
So this idea that some people feel like, well, as soon as we have a baby, everything will be perfect again. Having a baby is that we could do a whole podcast on that, you know, what happens throughout the entire reproductive cycle. So it's not going to magically go away. But the good news is there are definitely with some education and some really simple things that you can do, you can make this so much better and you can make them go away if you get the proper help. So there's infertility counselors and there's sex therapists. And sometimes there's an overlap, like with myself, with people who know a lot about both of those issues. But don't be afraid to uh, get the help that you need. You shouldn't have to suffer. Thanks so much, Liz. It was an absolute pleasure listening and learning from you. That's it for Sexually Speaking this time. There'll be more from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, please email me at counseling at drannkatz.com. That's counseling with two L's. 